Would you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 35, please? Jeremiah 35. Bible study is a great deal of uh, fun. I, uh, I, I look at it sometimes almost like reading an Agatha Christie novel or a, a book by Conan Doyle. There's a lot of sleuthing that has to be done, clues to look for. Uh, it involves putting together uh, pieces of Scripture, bits and parts from here and there in order to come to a conclusion. And when you get through, you not only have the, uh, the joy of, of a truth to live on, but you have the joy of discovery. You, you found something in a passage that looks like it doesn't contain anything. That's the way I feel about Jeremiah 35. I, uh, when I first started reading through Jeremiah in preparation for this series, I came across this chapter and I wondered, now what in the world can I say about the Rechabites? And uh, the first uh, half dozen readings or so really produced nothing. But the more I looked at this uh, chapter, the more excited I became about the truth that, that, uh, that's found here. Uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you have never heard of the Rechabites? That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> then this will, be, uh, this will be new for you. Chapter 35. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. With this introductory note, he takes us back about 12 uh, years from chapter 34. As you know, chapters 31, 32, 33, 34 all occurred during the reign of Zedekiah, uh, the the middle of of the 6th century. Now he goes back about 12 or 15 years to the reign of of Jehoiakim, about 601 B.C., and records for us a prophecy that he delivered to the nation of Judah at that time. It uh, began with with instruction to Jeremiah to go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to get Jeazaniah, son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brothers and all his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdalia, the man of God. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over that of Maasiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Then I set jugs full of wine and some cups before the men of the Rechabite family, and I said to them, Drink some wine. It's actually even stronger than the text indicates. It's a command. Drink wine. They replied, We don't drink wine. Because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine. Also, you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but you must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. We have obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built houses to live in or had vineyards, fields, or crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed everything our forefather Jonadab commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded this land, we said, Come, we must go to Jerusalem to escape the Babylonians and Armenian army and, our, and Aramean armies. So we have uh, remained in Jerusalem, or we are now living in Jerusalem. This last uh, 
phrase simply explains why they had seemed to break their Rechabite vow and had moved into the city of Jerusalem. It was to get uh, protection from the Arameans or the Syrians and the Babylonians. Now, what in the world can we make of this story? Well, uh, when you start sleuthing around, you, you discover that the Rechabites were not Jews. They weren't Israelis. They were Arabs, of all people. Uh, they were Kenites. The Kenites lived in the Sinai Peninsula, off to the east, near the Persian Gulf. Uh, Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. He married a woman from one of these Kenite tribes. And very early in the history of Israel, this uh, group of Arabs had moved uh, lock, stock, and barrel and moved en masse up into the northern part of Israel and had settled down there and had become uh, a part of the nation of Israel. Though they never intermarried, they were always uh, a separate uh, ethnic group, Arabs living among Jews. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the second thing that you discover about uh, these folks is that they all have God-bearing names. There's a term that uh, Old Testament scholars use for this sort of thing. They refer to this as a theophoric name, that is, names that bear the name of God. Now, for example, the uh, head of this delegation is Jaazaniah, son of Jeremiah. This is a different Jeremiah than the one who wrote the book, of course. Uh, the son of Habazaniah. Now that Yah uh, sound or uh, uh, prefix or suffix in one case is based on the name, the personal name of God, Yahweh, or if you have a King James Version, Jehovah. And all of these names are compounds of the name of the personal name of God. Now, as you know, in the Old Testament, the generic name or the general name for God is, is uh, Elohim. But the personal name, his real name, is Jehovah or Yahweh, more properly. And these names are all compounds of this personal name of God, which leads us to believe that these people not only had uh, joined Israel in terms of uh, geography, they were not living among not only living among the Israelites, uh, they had adopted the worship of the God of Israel. They loved the Lord, we would say today. Now, that's not always true. We do that today. We give names to our children that are theophoric without, any, uh, without thinking of the significance of it. Non-Christian uh, parents will name their children Christopher, for example. It means Christ-bearer. Or Nathaniel, it means uh, given of God or something of that nature, without really realizing the significance of the terms. But uh, the fact that there are three names in, in sequence, three generations of names given here, all bearing the name of Yahweh, you begin to suspect that something significant is going on. These people love the Lord. Now, uh, Jeremiah is told to go to uh, find this uh, Arab sheikh, Jaazaniah, and uh, invite him into the, uh, the apartments of the princes in the temple. The names of the people that are, uh, that are given here, uh, the sons of Hanan and Maasiah, son of Shalom the doorkeeper, were all officials. These were important people in Israel, and their apartments were nice apartments. These uh, Rechabites were invited into the uh, executive 
suite at the Hilton. It's that sort of thing. These were the nicest apartments in the temple, reserved for the princes and for the aristocracy. And uh, apparently it was a very small group of Rechabites, all that remained of this particular clan, and they were invited into the apartment of the princes of Israel. And uh, Jeremiah found uh, some large uh, jars like, like this. The word that, that he uses is a word that was borrowed from the Egyptian language for these enormous jars that you see sometimes in Egyptian paintings. And uh, filled them with wine and gave them cups and said, uh, drink wine. And they said, we don't drink wine. Now, that was a remarkable thing in Israel. It was remarkable for Arabs as well as for uh, Jews at that time. Because uh, Old Testament religion does not prohibit drinking of wine in moderation. Now, later, uh, the, uh, during uh, the 8th century B.C., during the time of Muhammad, uh, abstinence was enjoined on the on the Arabs, but at this time uh, there was nothing there was nothing contrary to the law in drinking wine in moderation. Drunkenness was a sin, but drinking alcoholic beverages in moderation was not a sin. There was nothing wrong with it. It's not uh, prohibited anywhere in the Old Testament, or for that matter, in the New Testament. Moderation is what Christians believe and teach. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, there are, are all sorts of reasons, probably Christian reasons, to not drink. And if you choose to not drink, that's perfectly all right. But we need to get the facts straight that the Bible does not teach abstinence. That's Islam that teaches abstinence. The Bible teaches moderation. Now, I'm not trying to make the point that you all ought to start drinking alcoholic beverages. You understand what I'm trying to say? I'm just, I just want to get the facts straight. As I say, there are reasons why you may choose not to drink as a Christian, but the Bible does not prohibit it. So it was not remarkable for uh, Jeremiah to say, drink wine. As a matter of fact, God told Jeremiah to uh, set the wine before them and to command them to drink wine, and God would never command anyone to sin. So there was nothing wrong with the command. What was peculiar and what would strike anyone as unusual at that time is the fact that they said, we don't drink wine. Because that wasn't something that was contrary to, uh, to Old Testament law. Now, the second thing, as they go on to explain, is that they didn't uh, live in houses. They lived in tents, and that was unusual, too, because uh, Judah at that time and Israel to the north was a sedentary uh, nation. They, they lived in, uh, it was an urban population, mostly. They lived in cities, some of them large cities. Some lived in the rural areas and farmed and and had shepherd and had sheep, but they but they weren't nomadic. They didn't live in tents, and they had vineyards, and they raised crops, and they put down roots, and that was perfectly all right. What was unusual is that these people were nomadic. That was anachronistic. That was a throwback. That was going back to the wilderness experience. They were back to nature people, like Buckskin Billy, you know, who chose to live up on the uh, salmon and make his own flintlocks and. Uh, Tan his own hides and and live off the land. They were they were a throwback to a to a prior uh, era, and that's what was so startling 
Jeremiah invited them to come live in these, uh, these plush apartments, and they say, no, we live outside. The only reason we're in Jerusalem is because the Babylonians are out there, and as soon as the Babylonians leave, we're going to go back out and live in our tents. And uh, we, don't, we don't drink wine. Thank you, just the same. They didn't equivocate. They didn't say, well, maybe we ought to discuss this some more. They didn't say, uh, uh, we're, we're unsure, perhaps we should. They said, no, no, we, we don't drink wine. And we don't live in big cities. Thank you. And uh, that, was, that was that. Now, the, the question is, who are these masked people? Where did they come from? What, what do we know about them? Now, if, if we only had this uh, chapter, we wouldn't know anything about the Rechabites. But fortunately, we, uh, there's another chapter that explains who these folks are. Will you turn with me, please, to 2 Kings 10? We're going back, uh, oh, 240 or 50 years or, or so, back to the middle of the ninth century now, to the time of Jehu, who was one of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. He was, uh, his, his uh, reign was predicted by Je- uh, Elijah. He was anointed king by Elisha. He was God's man to eradicate Baal worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. All of you know the story of Ahab, I'm sure, who married Jezebel, who was, the, uh, uh, who was a princess from Tyre, and who, when she came into Judah, brought with her, or into Israel, brought with her all of the practices of the Tyrians and their Baal worship. She brought the Baals with her. She brought uh, the priests of Baal, all the, uh, uh, and, and the worship of Baal in, into Israel with her. And Baalism became the state religion of the northern kingdom. That was the only time in the history of either the northern or southern kingdoms that Baal worship was the state religion. And it was Jehu's task to eradicate Baalism, which he did in a very, in a ruthless manner, as you know. He was a typical Easterner, and uh, though he was God's man to do the job, he did it in a particularly violent way. He literally massacred the entire family of, of uh of Ahab and Jezebel, all of that dynasty, uh, annihilated the dynasty, all of the sons, the possible, uh, the, the heirs apparent to the throne. And then he himself took the throne of, of uh, the northern kingdom in Samaria. Now we pick up the story in verse uh, 15 of chapter 10. After he left there, that is, uh, after he left the well of Beth Echad, where he had slaughtered 42 potential Baal worshippers. After he left there, he came upon Jehanadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Now, the spelling is different here. It's Jehanadab, and, and if you recall in Jeremiah, it's Jonadab, but it's just, an alt, uh, just a different spelling, a variant spelling. It's the same man, Jonadab, or Jehanadab, the son of Rechab who was on his way to meet him. Jehu blessed him and said, Are you in accord with me? Is your heart with me as I am with you, as my heart is with you, literally? I am, Jehonadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And the emphasis here is on my zeal. Come see my zeal 
for the Lord. We'll see the significance of that later. Um, and uh, so he had him ride along with him in his chariot. And when Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken uh, to Elijah. And then a bit later in verse 23, Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechav, are uh, aligned in further attempts to eliminate Baal worship in the northern kingdom. These two men together did just what Elijah had prophesied that they would do. They completely exterminated Baal worship and uh, restored the worship of, of Yahweh to the northern kingdom. Now, who is this Jehonadab, the son of Rechab? Well, we've already uh, found out that he's an Arab, for one thing. Uh, according to Chronicles, his uh, line of descent comes through the Kenites. So he's not an Israeli, he's an Arab. And secondly, his name, Yohanadab, is one of these theophoric uh, God-bearing names that we mentioned before. So that uh, there's some suggestion that uh, he comes from a, a line of, of people who loved and, and worshipped the Lord. But more significantly, the root NDB in Hebrew is always used for members of aristocracy. The only people who bore that particular root are people who were in the line of kings, who were princes or officials, aristocrats within the nation. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this man is that he's called the son of Rechav. And uh, scholars are all agreed that Rechav is not the name of a person. It's, uh, it, it's a description the, uh, the word Rechav means a charioteer. It's the same word that's used a bit later when Jehu places him into his chariot. There it's Merkava, it's the same, uh, same root. And uh, the phrase son of is a commonly used idiom in the Eastern world, in the Semitic world, for those in the class of. Uh, for example, in Job, uh, the angels are called the sons of God because they're part of the a godlike class of supernatural beings, of which angels are, are one, one type. Uh, the, the, the disciples of the prophets, the young theological students who followed the prophets around and were taught by them were called the sons of the prophets. doesn't mean they were their natural sons. It means they were their disciples. And uh, Jesus, for example, refers to himself as the son of man means that he's one of a class of other men. It's a reference to his humanity. In that case, later it became a messianic title. But, it, but originally it was simply a, another way of saying he's a man. He's a son of man. So the, the phrase son of means one of the class of. And uh, when we put all this information together, we arrive at the conclusion that Yohanadab was one of a class of charioteers. And uh, most people are agreed that that's exactly what he was. Uh, in the ancient world, the charioteers were considered an elite group. They were sort of like the rangers or the green berets, and uh, they always were drawn from the uh, arist aristocratic classes. They were the sort of shock troops, the elite troops of the ancient world, and they affected uh, special clothing like the, the green berets do now, and they wore their hair long, uh, it affected a kind of a dashing look, and... Uh, raced around on their chariots like uh, you would expect Arab sheikhs to race around. Um, as a matter of fact, in, they're found all over the, the ancient world. They're found in Assyria and Babylon and, 
And the Hittites up in Turkey had this class of chariot warriors, and the same was true in Egypt. And as a matter of fact, in Greece, they were called hippies. Uh, <laughs> not because they had long hair, but because they, uh, had, they were horsemen. And uh, the Greek word for horse is hippies, so they call them hippies. Uh, at least similar to that pronunciation. But uh, apparently that's what this man, Jehonadab, the son of Rechav, was. He was one of these dashing, uh, daring charioteers, a member of, of aristocracy. And these people were tough. They, everyone was afraid of them. They were like the samurai in, in Japan of, of years ago. And he apparently was a member of, of this group. But he was a man who loved God with all of his heart. And uh, when he heard of Jehu's attempts to exterminate Baal worship from Samaria, he joined with him. Jehu was on his way up to Samaria. And I want you to try to envision this in your mind, if you will. And uh, he's going to Samaria to take the throne. And down the, Samaria is up on top of a, a quite a large hill. And down from Samaria comes Jehonadab in his chariot with his robes flowing and his long hair sticking out from under his helmet and back. And uh, he pulls up to Jehu, and Jehu knew him. It's very obvious from the text that Jehu knew precisely who he was and was a little bit intimidated by him, but more than anything, knew of Jehonadab's zeal for God because he says to him, Are you with me? the way my heart is already with you. Jehu knew of this man's uh, faith and his desire to have, have a pure worship in Israel. And so when he saw him charge down the slope, the first question he asked is, are you with me or are you coming to attack me? And when he learned that he was for him, he, he, joined, he asked him to join him in his chariot and he says to him, come see my zeal for God. I know what your zeal is. Come see my zeal. And these two men apparently were aligned for a number of years in their attempts to restore the worship and the love of, of the Lord God of Israel to, this, uh, to the people of the northern kingdom. The problem was that Jehu's heart was never uh, holy. Uh, the Lord's, he was always a divided man. Uh, if you read on into the account in verse uh, 24, we're told that Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel, but... He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, when he had caused Israel to commit the worship, uh, commit the worship of golden calves at Bethel and, and Dan. He, he had a divided heart. And evidently, Jonadab saw that after a, a few years, and uh, he saw the, the ease and the affluence that, that crept into Jehu's uh, uh, court and later into the kingdom and the kind of easygoing, relaxed attitude toward, toward obedience. And he withdrew. He took his whole family and moved out into the desert. And he, he decided we're not going to have any, any part of urban life and easy living and soft living because that's going to take our heart away from God. And so he enjoined this set of rules on all of his descendants. We're not going to plant vineyards. We're not going to live in the big cities. We're not going to put down roots because we're likely to get entangled with that lifestyle. And uh, we're going to live in the desert away from all of these people. And we're going to worship God with a, with a pure heart. Now, you, you might look at that 
from one standpoint and say, oh, John Adab's a legalist. He, he's imposing rules on people that are, that are not found in, in Scripture. None of those, uh, those regulations have anything whatever to do with the law. But what you have to see beyond the rules is the heart of the man. Because the rules simply indicate that this man had a zeal for God. More than anything else, he wanted to follow the Lord. Now, with that in the back of your minds, let's turn again to Jeremiah, chapter 35. Read on, verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go and tell the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord? Jonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his sons not to drink wine. And they did it. The statement is just that terse. They did it. It's done. To this day they do not drink wine because they obey their forefathers' command. But I have spoken to you again and again and again, and you have not obeyed me. Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, Each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your fathers, but you have not paid attention or listened to me. Surely the descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechav, have carried out the command their forefather gave them, but these people have not obeyed me. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jonadab, and have followed all his instructions and have done what he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Jonadab, son of Rechav, will never fail to have a man to serve me. Judah, he says, will face uh, destruction, but uh, Jonadab and his descendants will, will always have someone in their family to serve me. Their family will never come to an end. And it almost pinched out during the time of Jeremiah. It was a very small group, small enough to fit into a small apartment. But there was, a, there was this promise. There will always be a descendant of the Rechabites to serve me. And as you read on through the Old Testament, you find these people popping up from time to time. They, they show up during the time of Nehemiah. There's one building the Dung Gate in the city of, of Jerusalem. And uh, Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that when uh, the Jews... Uh, wanted to, to hurl James off of the pinnacle of the temple. It was a Rechabite who tried to stop them. And uh, on through the Talmud, the uh, commentary on the law by the Jews of Jesus' time, and later there are references to the Rechabites serving in the temple until the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And there's still Rechabites living today, they tell me, in Yemen and in uh, Syria. So this promise has been uh, fulfilled. There will always be a Rechabite. A descendant of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, uh, there to serve me. Now, what, what can we learn from this, from this passage? Well, the first and most obvious thing is that, is that what God wants is an obedient heart. We certainly ought to be obedient because we are sons of God, and, and we ought to exemplify the character of our Father. And furthermore, we can because we have all of the resources of God. Obedience is not the hard, uh, tooth 
clinch it sort of thing that it's often made out to be. It's simply a matter of, of, of seeing what God wants us to do and then relying upon his mighty uh, resources to be what he intends us to be. That's what delights God, is that obedient heart. He doesn't even care if we get it all straight. You know, I think sometimes our, our preoccupation is with, uh, is with uh, getting, getting the truth uh, set up in order so that we understand everything perfectly. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to know God and to know everything there is to know about God. That's why we study Scripture. But as Paul says, we always know in part. We'll never know it all. We'll never get it all straight. What God is looking for is not uh, merely correct doctrine but an obedient heart. The, the ability to give what, what Ray Steadman used to, used to call an unequivocal no. One, one mark of a mature man or woman is the capacity to give an unqualified no. Just simply say, no, I, I, I don't do that without any hesitation. Um, I have a friend I've mentioned before who lost a... A job that paid him $100,000 a year because he simply would not do something that his employer asked him to do that was wrong. It was contrary to Scripture. And so he said, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And he lost his job. But it didn't matter. He had to do what God had called him to do, no matter what, what it cost him. When the Sanhedrin brought the disciples in and said, you can't witness anymore in the city of Jerusalem. They said, I'm sorry, whether we should... Obey God or man, you judge, you're religious folk, you make that judgment. As for us, we have to obey God. And then they took the consequences of their obedience, which meant beating and, and imprisonment. Now, if the Jews had said, don't preach on the steps of Jerusalem, they would, or on the steps of the temple, they would say, oh, okay, we won't. But, but the commandment went far beyond that sort of thing. It was a command not to preach at all. And there they ran afoul of a clear command of Scripture, and uh, they couldn't do it. So the mark of maturity in any of us is the capacity to give an unqualified no. Simply to say no to things that we know are wrong. To say, no, I don't uh, do adultery. <laughs> no, I don't, uh, I don't lie. Uh, we don't want to come across as self-righteous or priggish. Uh, it would be wrong to do so. Nor do we want to sit in judgment of others who may ask us to do wrong things. But... But by God's grace, we can say no. That's one of the marks of maturity, and, and it's such a delight to God's heart. I have, it's my personal belief that it's always wrong to violate your conscience. Our conscience may need to be instructed. Conscience is not a, a proper guide always for life. Uh, Pascal said uh, he likened our consciousness, our, our sense of conscience, to a, an insane city watchman who shrieks hysterically where the, in the middle of the night when there's no danger and then sleeps when there is real danger, when there are invaders climbing the walls. And in a certain sense, he's right. It's, but it's not the conscience that's insane. It's that we've, we've been putting the wrong information into the computer. The conscience is an early warning system. It's like the little red light or the LED readout on, the, on your dashboard. It tells you when your oil level is too low. It just warns you of danger. It warns you that something has gone wrong. That's the function of our conscience. It's the little red light that goes on when we start to do something or we're tempted to do something that we know is wrong. 
Now, it may be that our conscience uh, has to be instructed. Conscience can be wrong. It's sort of a... Most of the information we have in the computer is a mishmash of tradition and things that we've heard from our parents and preachers, and some of it is scriptural and some of it is not. It's what I call folk Christianity. It's sort of an amalgam of of all sorts of things that, for us, uh, measure rightness and wrongness. And we need to keep working in order to to get our... uh, get our facts straight and get good information into the computer. But if we don't have all the information yet, and we'll never get it all straight, we still need to be obedient to the truth that we have. I, I, all of you, I'm sure, have seen Chariots of Fire and uh, the story of Eric Lytle and his refusal to run on what he thought was the Sabbath. Uh, the Scottish Presbyterian Church at that time taught that Sunday was the Sabbath. And they were under Sabbath obligation. They, they couldn't uh, work or play on the Sabbath. And uh, for, for many of us, looking back on that, we say, well, you know, Sunday's not the Sabbath. In the first place, Saturday is the Sabbath. And, and uh, today, uh, uh, every day is a Sabbath day. The Sabbath was a symbol of the rest that we come, we, we've come into because of Christ. And so every day is holy. And Paul says that in Romans 13. Some regard every day alike. Others... Regard one day as special, so that we have the freedom to either take one day as special or not. In the case of Eric Lytle, I, I would say that he didn't have to keep the Sabbath, but he thought he did. He believed that that was God's will for him, and he would not violate his conscience. And what God saw and what we need to see is the intent of the heart, you see? That's what matters. That's why I say it's always wrong to violate our conscience, because if we think a thing is wrong and we go ahead and do it, it's as though we were actually doing something that's wrong, and the guilt is just as real as if we had violated some specific command of Scripture. But at the same time, be a good student of the Word and find out the, the information by which our, our conscience can be, uh, can be corrected. Um, my approach to, to uh, morality is that everything is right unless I know it's wrong. Now, some people turn that around, and they say everything is wrong unless I know it's right, and that that causes you to be fearful and paranoid about life, and you're afraid to venture yourself, and you never know when you're going to violate something that you believe is is the will of God. I used to uh, get a shirt off the hanger in the closet and take it into Carolyn and to uh, my mother, and uh, hold it up, and I'd say, is this shirt clean? And my mother wouldn't even look at it. She had a standard answer. She'd say, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's all right if, if you're talking about shirts, but as a, as, a, uh, as a guide for ethics, it's not a very good uh, rule to apply because it makes you fearful. I think we need, to, we need to say that everything is right. God has given us the world to enjoy. Everything is right unless I know it's wrong. Unless something is, is, is specifically forbidden to me in Scripture, then I'm free to engage in it. And uh, to, uh, the, the guidelines basically are positive that we have here, and it results in a very positive lifestyle. So that we do need to keep correcting our conscience on the base of Scripture. But if you're convinced that it's wrong to work on Sunday, or if you're convinced that it's wrong for Christians to smoke, Or if you believe that it's wrong for Christians to drink, don't violate that conscience. Because what God sees is the intent and desire of your heart. 
And it's that intent that he focuses upon. It's not that we get everything right. It's the intent. I, when I was in college, oh my goodness. When I was in college, I uh, uh, had a teacher, Dr. Mary Helen Vanier. I've never forgotten her. Uh, I was a PE major in college, and she was, the, uh, she was head of the PE department. She was a remarkable woman. Uh, I thought she was real. I think she was about 50. In those days, I thought she was ancient. <laughs> and what amazed me is that she'd get out and play one-on-one with the guys. And, and just a remarkable person. I just had the highest respect for her. And I decided one day I wanted to do something very nice for her. And uh, my father uh, had a what amounted to a pole patch, cedar poles. And we were cutting fence posts, uh, cedar fence posts for people. And I decided that I would cut some firewood for her because she had told me she loved the smell of cedar burning and the cracking and popping. And so I I uh, got our old truck and loaded it up with uh, cedar uh, cedar uh, posts that I'd cut in half and, and went to deliver them to her house. Didn't even tell her I was going to do it. And when I got to her house, I discovered there was a very narrow driveway. And she had, she was, uh, had never been married. And uh, she uh, lived alone with a little dog that she called L.D., Little, little Dickens. And, and her, her house was just immaculate. Uh, it, had, it, it was perfectly painted. She had gingerbread all around the, the roof. And it was just beautiful. And I was afraid I was going to hit that gingerbread with the sideboards on the truck. And so I measured and be sure I'd get under those, uh, that gingerbread and then back the truck all the way back into the garage, unloaded all of the wood, and then since I was sure that I wouldn't have any trouble getting out, I just uh, headed up the driveway. And, of course, all of you know what happened when you unload the wood truck uh, unsprung by about six inches. And I took out about ten feet of gingerbread right in the side of her house. And I was just petrified. I couldn't imagine what she would do when she found out. I lived. I left a note on the door and told her I did it and told her I would... Uh, would uh, would pay for getting it replaced and so forth. And you know that dear lady never said one thing about that gingerbread. I had to bring it up. The next day she just told me how much she appreciated that wood and that she had enjoyed it so much that night. And uh, because see what she saw was the intent of my heart. And I, I sort of shamefacedly admitted I'd torn all the gingerbread off her house. She'd oh, that's all right. Don't worry about it. Doesn't matter, see? And that's, that's God's attitude toward us. He sees the intent of our heart, even if we don't get everything right. And that ought also to be the, the attitude of our heart toward other people who don't have everything right, who don't sing the way we do. They sing with their hands up instead of down. Or who sing music that's a lot more lively and action-filled uh, than the music that we sing, our old, quiet uh, what we think are more worshipful songs. Are there people that speak in tongues and we don't? Are there people who don't speak in tongues and we do? Uh, are there people who worship on Saturday? And you know, I think we need to make up our mind about what we believe about these things and we need to be clear in our instruction. But we need to understand that what God sees is the intent of the heart and even if they don't have everything right from our standpoint, God knows. God sees, and God cares. 
And we need to have his, his heart toward those people. I was going to look at Romans 14. I don't have time to do that this morning. But that's Paul's side of things. He says, don't look down your nose at people who have a different set of beliefs than you do. Because what they do, they do to God. Maybe they don't eat meat. You know, the, the raging moral problem in Corinth was, that, uh, was the question of whether or not you eat meat that's sold in the butcher shop. Uh, that was right next to the temple. They would sacrifice animals and they'd take the meat down to the butcher shop and they'd sell it. And some Christians would say, I can't eat that meat. It reminds me of idol worship and everything that went with it. I can't do it. Others were saying, ah, it's no big thing. The idol's just a piece of wood. Who cares? They serve the best steaks in town. And uh, they'd go down there and get there. And, and Paul says, don't look down your nose at a brother who eats meat. Don't despise a brother who doesn't eat meat. Because he's not your servant. He's God's servant. And he has to answer to God for what he does. And just seeing that changes our attitude toward, toward people that we think don't have things exactly right. I, I remember a few years ago, a young lady who, had, who sang for us here on Sunday morning. And she had just recently become a Christian. And her life before had been singing in bars and... Uh, she was a country western singer, and, and we asked her to sing on a Sunday morning. I think it was a Sunday morning. It might have been a Sunday night. It's over at uh, Bishop Kelly. She's no longer here, so I can tell the story. But just a precious uh, lady. And she showed up on Sunday morning with a dress that was really inappropriate for Sunday morning. It was cut kind of low and kind of high. And, and uh, <laughs> people kind of winced when she, when she got up to sing, and she sort of bopped around, and she really belted out the song, and, and people sort of winced some more. But when she was all done, they applauded like crazy because they saw her heart. See? Saw her heart. That's what matters. A friend of mine tells about the time he saw a young lady stand in a communion service and take the cup and offer it as a toast to the Lord. She held it up. First time she'd been in a communion service, and she... <laughs> She, she had just become a Christian the week before, and all she knew to do with it was to toast the Lord with her communion cup. And I, I think that delights the Lord, because he sees the heart, and so should we. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, want to learn whatever lessons you have for us in this. We see these people, the Rechabites, and, and realize that they had, had gone beyond the truth in Scripture, but yet... What, uh, what you saw was their, was their heart and their attitude, and you loved them, and, and you point to them as examples of obedience, not because they had everything right, but because their hearts were right. And we would ask that that would be true of us, that we'd have the same patience and tolerance and love with people that you have, that we would work hard to get it straight, but that we would realize that we don't always, nor will we ever get it perfectly straight. And... Uh, and yet, Lord, what we want to do is live on the basis of the truth that we know. And we thank you that it's possible because you give us your mighty resources to do so. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.